Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois And by EasternChristianMedia.com A broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's EasternChristianMedia.com Christ is risen. Indeed, He is risen. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Welcome to Light of the East. And I greet you this way for the last time this season, Christ is Risen, because this particular week we'll see the conclusion of the Paschal season with the the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. So we do say Christ is Risen, indeed he's risen, up until Thursday of this week. In the Eastern churches, we have not transferred the Feast of the Ascension to Sunday, as is customary in Latin Rite churches recently, but for the Byzantine church, we keep the Holy Feast of the Ascension of the Lord, on the Thursday, the Thursday which is 40 days after Pascha, after Christ's resurrection from the dead. Following that, the next big feast on the liturgical calendar, of course, which of course we share with our brethren in the western lung of the church, and that is the Feast of Pentecost. But this week, we're looking towards the conclusion of the Paschal season with the Ascension of our Lord. Last week, we had the Feast of St. John the Apostle and Evangelist, and next to that was a translation of the relics of St. Nicholas of Myra, the patron saint, actually, the Byzantine Catholic Church, a huge saint for us. He is very real to us, so the translation of his relics. We often celebrate those things in our calendar, the translations or beheadings and findings and things like that. Even earthquakes are designated on the liturgical calendar in the Eastern churches. So in addition to the lives and deaths of the saint, oftentimes it's other aspects of them, like the translation of their relics, you know, events like that. And also the Apostle Simon the Zealot. And another big one for us, especially in my particular church, which is the Ruthenian jurisdiction of the Byzantine Catholic Church. In other words, it's one of the Slavic-based churches. We had the feast of St. Cyril and Methodius, apostles to the Slavs. These were two brothers who were born in Thessalonica. They came from the Byzantine Empire. They were Byzantine missionaries, but they had some Slavic background, and they were somewhat familiar with the Slavic language. In fact, it was Cyril, who was a monk, who developed an alphabet for the Slavic people of the region where our church came from, and that region is in Central Europe. It's right in the area of the Carpathian Mountains, the very epicenter of Europe, where Ukraine, Hungary, Slovakia all kind of converge together. Sometimes it's known as the Lower Tatra Mountains, the Carpathian Mountains. And Cyril and Methodius came up through that area, we believe, in the ninth century. 
and brought the Byzantine style of Christianity to the Slavic people. Now, the Slavic people spoke a language, and this language is really the mother tongue of all the Slavic languages, and it was used by St. Cyril and Methodius. In fact, that was very historical, very pace-setting at the time. In fact, Cyril and Methodius were called on the carpet, as it were, and they had to go to Rome and report what they were doing because they dared to put the liturgy, you know, the Mass, the Eucharist, in a language other than Latin or Greek. In fact, they put it in the language of the people, the vernacular. So in the Eastern churches, we were putting the language of the liturgy in the vernacular, the language of the people, the culture, at least since the ninth century. And when St. Cyril and Methodius did that, they found that the Slavs had a language, but not a written language. So Cyril, being the scholar he was, and a monk, he developed an alphabet called the Glagolithic alphabet. And it was based on the Greek characters, because that's what he knew. So he took the Greek characters, modified them a bit, and made a written language, an alphabet, what we know today as the language of Old Slavonic, or sometimes called Church Slavonic. This is no longer a spoken language, but it is a language, as I mentioned, the root of the mother tongue of languages such as Russian, and Ukraine, and so on, a lot of the Slavic languages. It would be something like today for us, kind of like Shakespearean English, kind of like an old English. So if you speak a Slavic tongue, you would be familiar with this language, but it was, would not be the language that you would necessarily use in conversation. It would just be reserved primarily to liturgical services. And in Eastern Europe, where the Byzantine Ruthenian Church exists, they tend to use the Church Slavonic only in sort of the hieratic liturgies. They tend to use, of course, the language of their countries. In other words, Slovak, Ukraine, and so on. But they do use Church Slavonic. Now, in America, the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic Church has chosen to sort of adopt the Church Slavonic as our only other language other than English. Many people ask me oftentimes, are your services in English? I guess it's sort of the impression that all Eastern churches have their services in their language of their countries, you know, their mother tongue, as it were, or ancient languages, such as the ancient Greek. Now, to a large extent, that is true. But at the same time, many Eastern churches, such as our own in America, have adopted English. In other words, once again, the language of the people, of the people we're in now, the culture we are currently in. At the same time, we do preserve, though, as sort of our, our root tongue, our mother tongue for worship, the church Slavonic. And depending on the parish in the Ruthenian Byzantine Church in America, you will hear various amounts of Slavonic in the worship. Primarily, overwhelmingly, it's English. But some parishes will even have, perhaps, a Slavonic liturgy on Sunday and then an English liturgy later on. Other churches will mix Slavonic in with the English, but by and large, our services are done in English with maybe little smatterings or bits of Slavonic kind of put in there from time to time, kind of like salt and pepper on, on, a, uh, on a steak, <laughs> something like that. that. At least that's the situation for the Byzantine Ruthenian Church, the Byzantine Catholic Church of the Ruthenian jurisdiction. Other Eastern Catholic churches, and also Eastern Orthodox churches, will oftentimes use their mother tongue, which was the language, the vernacular language of their particular countries, but also ancient languages, such as Aramaic or an ancient Syriac or an ancient Greek. So, Sir Methodius are two brothers who are very significant for my particular church, and they're very courageous men and very, actually very relevant and ahead of their time, because as I mentioned, they brought Christianity to our people and they translated the services of our church into the vernacular, and also because they were very courageous missionaries. They were actually mistreated by their own Roman Catholic brethren, sad to say, but it is part of history, because there was kind of a, 
bumping ahead. It's kind of a convergence point. There were German missionaries coming from the West to kind of missionize and claim the area of the Carpathian Mountains. And then came the Byzantine missionaries. And they both kind of, you know, wanted to (laughs) claim these people for their own. Both, of course, bringing Christ, but it's oftentimes what happens. The church, you know, has the fallen human element in it, so politics got involved. And especially when Sir Methodius were bringing a different liturgy than the Latin Rite liturgy, they were bringing a different language than Latin, and they were daring to put the liturgy into a vernacular. So those were all very, very prophetic, pace-setting, cutting-edge, over-the-top, or whatever you want to call it, type of activities at that time. And so there were a lot of trouble. There was a lot of trouble that brewed, and they were called on the carpet, brought to Rome. But in the end, the Pope vindicated them. In fact, he said what they were doing was actually very good. And so that's really where we get the tradition of putting the liturgy, or the Mass in the West, into the language of the people. Now, this became the common practice after the Second Vatican Council in the Western Church. Primarily the Mass, of course, in the Western Church had to be in Latin. And Latin, of course, is still the preferred language, is still the mother tongue of the Latin Rite Church. It's okay to use it. In fact, it's good to use it. In fact, I do hear it being used more often today than I did a few years ago. But by and large, the Latin Rite Church, of course, also prays in the language of the people. And this came actually from the influence, the positive influence of the Eastern churches, which have been doing this for, as I mentioned, many centuries. Now, that brings us then to this day. The Byzantine liturgical calendar this day is called the Sunday of the Man Born Blind. And this concludes several Sundays in a row on our liturgical calendar in which there was the theme of healing and of water. And always a kind of a play on the theme of healing, especially using John's Gospel. The Gospel of John tends to have that kind of like, oh, things on multiple levels. So last week we had the Sunday of the Samaritan Woman, And, of course, she was spiritually healed by Christ of her yearnings and her desire for love and intimacy. But at the same time, that took place at a well. So water, again, was at the center of the picture. And before that, we had the son of the paralytic, you know, who waited by this sheep pool to be put in and no one would put him in. So three Sundays in a row, we have the element of healing on multiple levels, physical and spiritual. And we also have the image of the presence of water. And it's very purposeful by the church, especially the Eastern Church at this time, following Easter Sunday during the Paschal season. Why? Because the Paschal season is a time in which the church enters into the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through baptism. And so baptismal themes are are implied in the choice for the gospel readings. So there's always going to be water and there's always going to be some kind of healing. In other words, there's going to be some kind of dying away of something and arising to a new self, a new person. So somebody is healed, or they're brought beyond their sinfulness, and there's always the element of water. So you have life in the Spirit, kind of a baptism in the Spirit, and also the use of water as well. So in the Eastern churches, these Sundays after Easter are our ways of entering into by the emphasis on baptism and healing, of dying and rising. It's our way of liturgically entering into the reality of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about this very rich time in liturgical calendar when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. 
You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Pope John Paul II once said, Humanity, its dignity and its balance, at every moment and on every place on earth, will depend upon who he is for her and who she is for him. I am Father Thomas Loyer with a Theology of the Body moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Why are we a man? Why are we a woman? Unless we know the why, we do not know the how to be man or a woman, and therefore we do not know how to really be for each other. The why behind being a man or woman is told in the theology of our gendered bodies. Our bodies speak a language. Gender reveals God. Through gender, we can actually participate in the way that God loves us. We can love as God loves. Human sexuality is an icon of the very interior life of the Holy Trinity. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Have you ever heard of a Byzantine Catholic? Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya with an Eastern Christian Moment. Pope John Paul II said that the Church must breathe with both its lungs, East and West. The Catholic Church is composed of various rites and jurisdictions within these rites. The Byzantine Rite is one of the rites from the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church. The Latin Rite is a rite of the Western Lung of the Catholic Church. Over time, tensions arose between the two lungs of the church and they finally split from each other in 1054 AD. The Western lung became known as the Roman Catholic Church or Latin Rite and it was centered in Rome. The Eastern lung became known as the Eastern Orthodox Churches and they had four centers, Alexandria, Constantinople, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Beginning in the 15th century, parts of the Eastern Orthodox Churches and the Latin Rite began reuniting again, thus creating what we know today as the Eastern Catholic Churches. To find out more about the Eastern Lung of the Church, go to easternchristianmedia.com. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyal, your host. And by the way, if you're in the area anywhere near our church, coming up in June, June 15th to the 16th, that's a Friday and a Saturday, I can't help but promote something for our very wonderful and precious teenagers of our parish because they're working very hard, very admirable. They've been working all year long to earn their way to the National Byzantine and it's a little play on words there, B-Y-Z-A-N-T-E-E-N, Byzantine Youth Rally, which is held every other year, and it moves around the country. And this year, it's way out on the West Coast, in beautiful San Diego, at the University of San Diego. So the teenagers from the rest of the country, the Byzantine teenagers, are trying to make their way there. And our particular teenagers at Annunciation Parish in Homer Glen, Illinois, where I'm the pastor, are going to have a big yard sale. The last one they had was very successful. So if you're in the Chicago area or if you want to come in for it from somewhere else, that's <laughs> all the better. But that's going to be Friday, June 15th to Saturday, June 16th, the yard sale for our Byzantines. You can go to our website, byzantinecatholic.com, to find out more information. That's byzantinecatholic.com. As I mentioned, we're going to have a huge day this week, the culmination of the Paschal season with the Ascension of our Lord. Now, one of the many reasons this is huge is because it's very exemplary of the 
sacramental spirituality and worldview of the Eastern churches. It's one of those feasts that really portray that, really convey that. And in, in this case, it has a lot to do with our view of the human person, especially the human body. Now, we see this kind of thing in feast days such as the Transfiguration, which is on August 6th, and also the Incarnation, in other words, the Nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh, as well as the Resurrection, and also with the Mother of God, we see it especially in the Feast of the Dormition, which will be coming up in August. What we see here is the reality of the human person as they were intended to be and as they will be in the end of time and for all time. In other words, we see what John Paul II might call in his theology of the body, the original man and the eschatological man. In other words, how we were meant to be at the beginning and would have remained had we not sinned and how we will end up in the end and forever. And what that means basically is this. It means this wonderful fusion and integration of ourselves as human creatures. In other words, our bodies, our soul, and our spirit all put back together again, all one, all transfigured and glorified in heaven. Those parts of our being, our spirit, our soul, or body, were never meant to separate out, such as death as we know it. And with Christ, and also with the mother of God, what we see is the new Eve and the new Adam. We see what is actually the way things were meant to be and how they will be in the end. See, Jesus came down and kind of put things back together again. I sometimes call it tongue-in-cheek. He put Humpty Dumpty back together again. He really did. He put the human race back together again, the way it should have been. He reintegrated the separated body and soul. He reintegrated heaven with earth, which, in other words, we can now enter into heaven. We couldn't do that before. There was a separation between heaven and earth. We couldn't go to heaven when we died. But now with the coming of Christ, heaven and earth are reintegrated again, and death becomes that passage to heaven. Well, so too with our human body person. Our body, soul, spirit are reintegrated and even glorified. And that is all expressed in the liturgical prayers and the choice of readings in the Byzantine liturgical calendar for the Feast of the Ascension. I'll give you an example. In one of the prayers we say during the Vesper service, we say, You have renewed in yourself, O Lord, the human nature which had fallen in Adam into the very depths of the earth. On this day you are raised far above the principalities and powers of heaven. Having so loved human nature, you granted that it may be enthroned with you. In your compassion, you united it with yourself. In union with it, you have suffered. And by your passion, you glorified it. O God, beyond all suffering, now the bodiless powers are saying, who is the man clothed in majesty? He is not only a man, but he is indeed the God-man, for he possesses the appearance of both. And the angels arrayed in splendid garments and circle the apostles, saying, As Jesus the God-man is separated from you, in his divine humanity he shall come again, to judge both the living and the dead. And he grants to all the faithful forgiveness of sins and great mercy. Now, do you see how rich that was? That was a theological exposition and yet it was our chant. I, I read it, I didn't sing it, I chanted, but these words would actually be chanted in our Vesper service. If you notice what it said, you have renewed yourself, O Lord. You've renewed in yourself, O Lord, the human nature which had fallen. And it says also, on this day you are raised far above the principalities and powers of heaven, having so loved human nature. You granted that it may be enthroned with you. Now, now imagine that. There is a human body on the throne of heaven. Can you imagine? It's right. We rise. Actually, a human person has risen higher than the angels. Then it says, in your compassion, you united it with yourself. In other words, you united human nature, the human body, with himself. 
in union with it you have suffered, and by your passion you glorified it. Then it talks about the angels. It says, now the bodiless powers are saying, who is this man clothed in majesty? He is not only a man, but is indeed the God-man. Imagine, even the angels are amazed in heaven. And we say the same thing when it comes to this past feast day of the resurrection, the, the Paschal event. We actually say that the angels in heaven were amazed at your suffering and death and resurrection. Well, so too are they amazed as they literally, you can just picture, they're literally watching something rising up through heaven and it's going past them. And they're kind of looking at it. You know, it's kind of an analogy here, but it's, it's an interesting kind of picture. They're looking at this creature and they're wondering, what is this going higher than us? I mean, we're angels in heaven. We surround the very throne of God. And what is it? It's a human person. And it's also God. You imagine the amazement of the angels. One of the readings we select for this day is from the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, and it's chapter 62, and it says this, pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, raise up a standard over the nations. See, the Lord proclaims to the ends of the earth, say to daughter Zion, your Savior comes. Here is his reward with him, his recompense before him. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called frequented, a city that is not forsaken. Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? This one arrayed in majesty, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, I who announce vindication, I who am mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like those of the winepresser? The winepress I have trodden alone, and of my people there was no one with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them down in my wrath. Their blood spurted on my garments and all my peril I stained. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. My year for the redeeming was at hand. I looked about, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that there was no one to lend support. So my own arm brought about the victory and my own wrath lent me its support. So when the passage goes on again, this is from Isaiah 62 and also Isaiah 63, the first few verses. Notice what's happening. It's again echoing what is in the prayer, and the prayer is echoing what's in the scripture here in Isaiah. It's the heavenly powers looking at this rising up of human nature and the divine together. And it's noticing about the color red, you know, crimson with red. Now, there's a number of symbolisms about red. That is, first of all, red has a royal dimension to it, a royal character, as a character of blood, which means sacrifice, the shedding of blood. It has the connotation also of purity. And all these connotations for this color of red are employed in Byzantine iconography, especially when it comes to the painting of the Mother of God, who's painted with a very deep red sort of overgarment on her body. And it has those kinds of meanings, that, that purity and that queenliness, you know, that royalty. So the scripture passage here is echoing what is in the prayers, and the prayers then echo, of course, what is in the Scripture passage. So you see how we use Scripture in the Eastern Church. We use it with a great deal of what we call allegorical typology. In other words, we're sort of reading back into it its ultimate meaning after, only after, the events of Jesus Christ. In other words, we understand what the Old Testament means only after we have understood and experienced Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is sort of read back into the Old Testament, as is the mother of God. So we call this allegorical typology. And that's the a basic approach that the Eastern churches use for Scripture. And they kind of take that approach and they align it with the liturgical text. So the two kind of go together. Maybe we'll look at one more passage here. It's another beautiful one. It says, 
You that despise the body, your foolish talk is now silenced. Clearly has Christ revealed to us that all those united in his flesh will ascend with him on high. Now, there's a very salient, (laughs) very pithy kind of representation of this great, great truth of theology, of, of revelation, that God took on our body fully, completely, the human person, and he redeemed it and has raised it, brought it with him, and enthroned it on his very throne in heaven. I mean, that is just awe-inspiring. So are the liturgical text of the week of the ascension of our Lord into heaven that we say and pray in the Byzantine church, as well as the marvelous readings of Scripture. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road. Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>